Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. We're going to be continuing our series about standing out from the crowd. And on this episode, we're going to be discussing some of the old school or traditional business models for doing that. And so last episode, we talked about how competitive the wine market is now with roughly 300,000 wine brands globally. The need to differentiate is critical and the wine quality and critic scores alone can no longer make a brand. But there are still lessons to be learned in how successful brands have been made in the past. Peter? In the last 20 or 30 years... Press and scores were the real catalyzing points to building a brand, but brands use different methods to be successful and differentiate themselves. While many wineries tell a similar brand story, usually it's the land or the terroir if they own vineyards or winemaker founder driven if they don't own the land, there were still three different pathways, even with those same stories that they use to build their business. One you could call the cult model. The other was heavily through the trade or wholesale channel. And then another was leveraging hospitality or what we would call the tasting room now. So looking more at the cult path, this is really an example of supply and demand and creating something that is collectible. And when you create something that's collectible with a limited production, a real cachet from high critic scores, you build collector interest, you create a secondary market value. And essentially you're building an investment grade wine that people want to buy, have to have, and it's hard to get. And the hard to get used to take all sorts of forms. Do you remember Marcuson? You had to literally mail in a check and you had no idea if you were going to get the wine or not. And the internet did exist back in this day. They wouldn't pick up their phone. They said, you know, we just are just a few of us. We're at the winery. We don't have a lot of staff. And it made people feel really special when they got the wines. They're like, wow, I got selected. I'm one of the few people at Marcuson. And so they built their cult that way and were able to take pricing quite high for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Another example is Scream Eagle, sort of similar. They don't allow anyone to visit. They have a super long waiting list to get in. And so they really created this cult appeal by having lots of demand and keeping their production really low. I mean, they only make like maybe 1,500 cases a year and sort of have kept it like that for a few decades. Yeah, I almost think of those as like the unmarketing campaign. They're so exclusive that they don't have to market. Yeah, and that's part of luxury branding, right? You're creating these barriers to buy and making it so that people feel special when they have it. And so now it becomes something they show off to their friends to say, hey, I have this bottle of Screaming Eagle, right? They're like, wow, how did you get that, right? Yeah, so let's talk about how things have changed for these cult brands. So there's still a need to garner a lot of cachet through scores. Obviously, there's more people scoring wine than ever before. So there's definitely getting that out to those few select that they trust to rate and review their wines. But then there's a need for people to build a brand and hospitality is an important aspect. You build relationships through word of mouth and there are so many cult wineries or people that want to be cult wineries out there these days that it becomes hard to really differentiate which one is a true cult versus a wannabe cult. Some ways they can do that is by, you know, making iconic packaging, having a cool factor to them, really garnering interest with a certain subset of people. With the COVID world, direct-to-consumer online sales are super strong, and the wealthy can still afford to buy, especially these high-end premium wines. But people may pull back, and we might see 
reductions in net wealth, and that may result in the not-so-famous cult wines dropping off the radar or having a hit with their sales volume. That point is really important, Robert, because if you already have a well-established cult brand with tons of extra demand, lots of people wanting to buy it, then you probably still have no problem selling out. I remember what happened in 2009 and 10 was a lot of people with long waiting lists started to clear the waiting list. So I got bumped up into a few mailing lists that I was on the waiting list for that theoretically were two, three years wait back then. And then I was able to buy wine. And so if you have a big enough backlog of business, that's okay. If you're in the process of trying to build a cult brand, that may be more challenging over the next couple of years because there's just going to be less people who are going to open up your offer and say, $500 a bottle, no problem. What about in terms of tenure, Peter? Is there a period of time in which a brand has to be established to essentially garner that cult status? Or can you be a cult brand right out of the gate in today's market? I think it's possible to have some cult cachet out of the gate. But one of the things you said that was really important earlier was that it's about being investment grade, right? So, you know, you talk about there's two different types of demand for fine wine. You have consumption demand. I love it. I want to own it. I want to drink it. And then you have investment demand, right? I want to own it. I want that value to increase over time. And it's collectible. It's an investment, an alternative financial investment. For that to happen, you need to have a history, you need to have a history of quality, a history of collectability, a history of ageability. And so without that, you lose that part of the demand and it makes it harder to be a cult right out of the gate. So let's talk a little bit about building brand through the trade, Peter. Yeah. So this is where brands get built through restaurants and retailers through that wholesale channel. They really require a lot of emphasis and a lot of relationship building with people in the trade and that brand value in the trade. I'm assuming that also implies to some training of that staff where possible, especially at marquee locations. Yeah, and that's part of the relationships. And that's one of the things that has changed now versus maybe 20, 30 years ago when distributors would push things into placements at different restaurants. Now you have sommeliers and other people, which is not a profession that wasn't as big as it is today, 30 years ago, that you need to have direct relationships with because they're making more buying decisions versus Distributors saying, hey, this is what you should sell and why. So some examples of this over the last 20, 30 years are like Opus One, right? And they were really able to leverage the brand history and the reputation of their founders, Robert Mondavi and Chateau Mouton Rothschild, one of the first gross of Bordeaux. And they did it with a lot of events and promotions to the trade. So they did a lot of traveling, a lot of relationship building with collectors, but also heavily with the trade. One of the key things they did when their supply was a little bit above their demand for a while was do a buy-the-glass program with a special instruction for the sommelier to tell the story as they got it. So they price-promoted it, so it was a good program. And then there was also like a little card with a description of the wine for the consumer. Yeah, you don't see a lot of Opus One buy-the-glass anymore, sadly. Maybe if you're at the three Michelin star restaurant or something in Las Vegas or somewhere like that. Yeah, it's interesting how they're leveraging the Mandavi pedigree as well as the Chateau Mouton Rothschild pedigree at the same time to create a win because they're basically leveraging to both international and domestic markets at the same time. Mm-hmm. And they've done a great job of using the Bordeaux negotiants, the La Place de Bordeaux, to sell their wines all over the world. 
And so they've actually still been able to create a level of scarcity or at least perceived scarcity. So they do sell a little bit of wine online direct to consumer and they limit it to six bottles per person. So you can still just go online and buy it. But when you try to buy it in the trade, they basically have so many people selling it that each person selling it has a small amount and it gets hard to buy a lot. And they do see people. They do some hospitality as well to continue that brand building. The hospital is at the ultra premium level. It's like $50 a taste right, or something like that. It's setting a bar that this is one of the top wines in the Napa Valley. And they're not trying to sell as much as other wineries in Napa Valley. That's not their focus. Like when you visit wineries at Bordeaux, often you can't buy wine there. They're just trying to give you that brand message, build a relationship with a brand, and tell you, oh, our wine is sold out because they sell it out through the negotiants who then sell it to retail and sell it to people downstream. Another example is Dominus, another Bordeaux-related Napa brand. But they don't do any hospitality. They've never let any visitors come, maybe special guests. So it's also through trade, through the great relationships of the owner, Christian Moway, who's a big-time Bordeaux producer. And so they're able to similarly sell it all through their relationships in the trade and not rely on hospitality or even the notion of trying to be a cult wine in order to sell it. What's interesting is that they even put an image of Christian Moway. <laughs> yeah, he was on the label up until the early 90s. I believe it was the 1990s. Switched over. Same with Opus One, right? Opus One has a sketch of Robert Mondavi and Philippe Rothschild on the label. Yeah, it's so important that they leverage that imagery and that name. It was almost more important than Dominus at that time. And now that it's gained that cachet, it was able to change the label in the early 90s and switch over to now what is a fairly iconic label as well. So things today are a little different for the trade. We talked about the rise of the sommelier and the celebrity sommelier. So they're often looking for lesser known brands and stories to tell, not necessarily those real established brands or established names like Mondavi or Christian Moe. You could argue that some of that is in the face of either wines that they're drinking or that they're seeking out into to be something new and different and kind of anti-establishment, seeking out what is the new and they're being tastemakers in that regard, not necessarily to get away from these established brands, but also some of those established brands have been priced out from the average consumer or being available to the restaurants at an affordable, reasonable rate. It's also tough for small brands to really get the attention of big distributors these days because there's been so much consolidation in the industry. And so with that consolidation, the big guys want people with enough volume that they can sell broadly and do a single training to their sales force to understand their portfolio and their wines and get it out there. So directed consumer is becoming a bigger and bigger part of the wine industry and working through the trade is becoming not as important as it was maybe 10, 15 years ago with direct to consumer on the rise. And so that is something that's going to have to pivot. And so spending all of your effort on just building in the trade isn't as effective as if you build that directly with the consumers who are buying your end product. And honestly, the margins uh, are greater if you go direct to the consumer as well. There is a benefit of being out in trade, especially in restaurants, but also to some degree in retail, where consumers get the chance to try the wine if they don't visit the winery. They can buy a bottle, buy a glass at a restaurant and try the wine first and learn about it. And then maybe they'll pivot to being direct if it's easier for them or better for them to get it that way. Yeah, I mean, it definitely speaks to our next point in terms of building brand through hospitality, because Not everybody is able to visit every winery's 
tasting room. And then some of these wineries don't have tasting rooms. So they're only available in these certain outlets. But for the last 30 years or so, hospitality has boomed in California for sure and around the world for wineries around the world. And a lot of brands have been built almost solely through that method. One of the classics in Napa is Visatui, right on Highway 29 with big picnic grounds and a deli. They were so successful doing that and selling their wines with a lunch picnic and, you know, sitting out in the sun and, and all that, that they actually, Daryl Satui built Castello di Amoroso up the hill, which is a big Italianate style castle, which is, of course, another tourist attraction whose business model solely built on people coming to the winery or primarily built, we should say. Another one that was historic and maybe not as much, probably selling a lot more through trade now than it was, but established itself with a unique hospitality angle is Sterling, where you have the gondola ride up and a self-guided tour with great views of Napa. So another one that comes to mind for me is Del Dotto. I used to joke in one of my early experiences is going on their cave tours where you're doing barrel tastings. And if you go at the very last session of the day, you would get pretty heavy pours. And a lot of barrel tastings. Yeah, a lot of barrels. And it was educational because you were tasting the same one in American oak versus French oak and tasting different plots of land. It was quite interesting. And it was also bringing up the concept of buying futures and you filling out this card of which one you liked better because you're comparing two things. And by the end of it, you had a bunch of wines that you've liked and you're making some potentially questionable purchasing decisions. But it was always a good experience, especially that last, not a place to visit at the very first stop. It <laughs> so. reminds me of free drinks at casinos in Vegas. <laughs> right? Better quality than that. You may spend a little more money than you might. I don't mean quality wise. I just mean from a business model perspective, right? It's a little try a lot before you buy. <laughs> then if you're going down Silverado Trail, you see Dariush, which is like a Persian palace that is like dropped in the middle of Napa Valley. And you, you can't help but notice it as you drive by. You're like, what is this ginormous tasting room? And the wines are solid, but they then leverage like going into the founder's backstory and where their ancestry is and talk about how they came to California. And, and then they decided to reestablish themselves in Napa Valley with this as an homage to their heritage. It's quite the story and a lot of amazing storytelling is happening in hospitality in Napa. And it brings so many people in, right? And it's really built all these businesses and made them very successful over the last few decades. Today, things are changing a little bit. Well, for sure, in the COVID world, under shelter in place, there's less. And with social distancing for a little while, there will probably be less capacity to see as many people as they used to. But even before that, people are even more into experiences now than they were before, like millennials particularly are all about experiences. And so there's been a movement towards them becoming more exclusive, more by appointment only, and almost more extravagant because there's so many people trying to do the same thing and trying to one up each other in the experience they can get to attract their fair share or their greater share of visitors to them. It's become one-upmanship in terms of some of the big brands in Napa and Sonoma, but it's almost like an adult Disneyland. You're essentially going on a ride and uh, you may end up with a case of wine. And when experiences are really the fore and the push of these wineries and their experiences, it may be a little bit harder to get people to sign up for wine clubs. And maybe if they do sign up, they don't stay as long as they used to. And there's just so many. I know people used to sign up for three or four wine clubs in a day. And then they're like, ah, what do I do? I get too much wine, spend too much money. I need to cut back. 
I remember you used to be able to like power trip and go and hit like five or six wineries in a single day, but that's no longer that possible if you want to get the best experience possible and you really go into the hospitality. And now as someone in the trade and you're going there, you end up spending, you know, even more time there because you're kind of able to get a deeper access into what's going on behind the scenes. It's really interesting that even the average consumer is doing less visits in a day and those visits are more intensive and higher end. And so it's really an evolution of who's going to get that consumer's time for that day that they're there on the weekend. And one of the interesting things is who are the consumers? Having the limitation of people actually coming to the winery means you're getting a lot of people who are in the local area, which is great. It's great to build a local consumer base. You can get them with benefits of future visits to the winery, whether they're free or special room or or whatnot. But in a lot of the data I've seen for many different wineries, the higher average purchase, the longer tenures on the wine club tend to be people who come from out of state or out of the region because they're not coming to your space as often. They're not coming to your region as often, and they're building a deep connection with you. Unlike someone, for example, Napa to San Francisco, a lot of people in San Francisco, they can go to Napa pretty much anytime they want. So they often go explore and go see hundreds of the different wineries up there. And so they're a little more curated in terms of what they want to buy and which wine clubs they want to join. So getting that experience and getting your name out there and thinking about who am I trying to attract in. And then I think as we think about how things have changed, who do I target outwards or outside of my area is really important. Well, it's also interesting because a number of wineries are owned by the same owners and they'll move consumers or try to suggest consumers to go from one winery to the other. And if they don't get them with one winery to sign up for their wine club, maybe that other experience will be more to their liking and meet their taste. And then they're trying to make it so it's as easy and low barrier for them to go from one of their properties to another and still resonate with that user group and figure out which one will hook them. And things have really started to change over the last 30 years. We've talked about it. For the cult model, one of the trends that is happening is there's a lot of cross-marketing with other cult brands, be it fashion or cars or watches, as well as other wineries. And certainly, I think a lot of cult brands are taking hospitality and sharing their brand message more, whether that's hosting people at the winery or on the road or through auction events. Okay, so for trade, more than Bordeaux signing up for La Place de Bordeaux and... You see Napa Winery, South American Wineries, Catina Zapata, Maceto, Inglenook. I didn't realize Inglenook was there. Almaviva, I knew. The winery relationships are down to an account level. So, for example, like wineries work directly with specific sommeliers or specific retailers versus just major importers or distributors. Wineries now have salespeople to sell with distributor salespeople alongside them to make sure that the brand message gets carried through. Yeah, and on the road... We talked about bringing it to more people, doing events in all sorts of different metro markets where there's big customer bases or potential customers. There's also a lot more exclusive experiences happening that aren't at the winery. So there's really high-end things like Krug experiences where they'll have their own train. I think this was in the UK where they had Michelin star chefs with high-end bands pouring Krug the whole time. And it's, you know, I think it was a four or 500 pound experience, but something that is top notch and extremely memorable. That's going to really imprint the message of the brand into your brain forever. Yeah, there's definitely a lot more to explore with branding in terms of defining and really honing in on what is your brand persona and what is that consumer that you're targeting. And one of the examples of that 
is Scribe, who has a specific targeted vibe. You could say hipster vibe to it, where they're targeting a specific millennial audience who are looking for an experience that is, you know, laid back and cool, and that's going to resonate with them. It's not necessarily meant for everyone who is going to the Napa Valley. And then you look at social media, and there's definitely a lot of wineries that maybe people even in the trade aren't aware of that are doing fairly well on social media and creating their own content and educating their consumers and building up that way. And I think for a lot of smaller wine regions or wine producers who don't have the ability to get that natural allure of a tack-on destination like maybe Napa does from San Francisco. I'm thinking of like Oregon wineries. Portland doesn't necessarily have the same appeal as San Francisco as a travel destination and therefore doesn't necessarily get all the benefits that Napa gets from being next to San Francisco. And so you see a lot of these wineries that are really kind of boutique, smaller production. They have tasting experiences, but they're really doing a good job of getting their brand messaging out to their users across social media in all the various forms. Yeah, and then there's multi-channel. You got to think multi-channel when you think getting your brand message out there. That could be email, social, text messaging, even having calendar invites if you're doing allocated offerings at certain times and marketing automation or ways to just that really connect deeply with your customer and get your brand message across. There may even be old school things that come back because no one does them anymore, like physical mailers, right? Where you have something tangible that reminds you of the brand or it might be a little gift or something that just implants the brand message back into your brain. And hopefully there will be a lot more innovative ideas to come as we continue to figure out what works for the wine industry in the next decades. So we'll check in with another episode where we finish up our evolution on standing out in the crowd. But thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Robert. And Peter. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of Egg Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers. 